I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Speed Racer. Your son seems to be interested in only one thing. All he talks about, all he seems capable of thinking about, is automobile racing. Racing's everything. For my family, it isn't just a sport. It's way more important than that. It's like a religion. Are you ready to become a real race car driver? Then sign that contract! He's just trying to scare you, son. What you do behind the wheel of a race car has nothing to do with business. You walk away from me, you walk away from this deal, no matter how well you drive, you won't win, you won't place. I guarantee you right now, you won't even finish the race. You think you can drive a car and change the world? It doesn't work like that. Maybe not. But it's the only thing I know how to do and I gotta do something. Move it, Speed. It's getting ugly out there. Wasn't my idea. Oh, no. It was his. He's going to be very good. Now he's going to be the best if they don't destroy him first. With us again to continue our unscheduled cruise through the Wachowski's back catalogue are longtime friends of the show, Alexa Pluto Burns Vargas. Cool beans. <laughs> cool beans. 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 And Name Chibiti. We're changing our plan to change your plan to change our plan. Right, boss? <laughs> uh, Mookie Cookie. <laughs> right. So this is based on the 1967 Japanese anime of the same name in America, itself based on the 1966 shonen manga book, Mac Go Go Go. This was created by Tetsuo Yoshida after watching two American films, Racing Picture Viva Las Vegas with Elvis Presley and Goldfinger with James Bond and more crucially his gadget-laden Aston Martin DB5, which incidentally we saw in 2021's No Time to Die. Here he comes, here comes Speed Racer, he's a demon on wheels. He's a demon and he's gonna be chasing after someone. He's gaining on you, so you better look alive. He's busy revving up the powerful Mach 5. And when the odds are against him and there's dangerous work to do, bet your life's eraser. See it through. Go speed racer, go speed racer, go speed racer, go. 
Dalton flying as he guns a car around the track. He's jamming down the pedal like he's never coming back. Adventure's waiting just ahead. Go speed racer, go speed racer, go speed racer, go. It was just one single long 57-episode season back in 67 through 68, but it got re-aired repeatedly and was a key aspect of how America slowly embraced anime over the next couple of decades, along with the later Voltron, Battle of the Planets, Dragon Ball Z, and then Pokemon. Now, it is appropriate this year that we're covering more anime, the Wachowski's body of work, and Mario Kart, because this is a collision of all three. To give this some perspective, we have to now take you back to the summer of 2008. I kissed a girl and I liked it. The taste of her cherry chapstick. I kissed a girl just to try it. I hope my boyfriend don't mind it. It felt so wrong, it felt so right. Don't mean I'm in love tonight. I kissed a girl and I liked it. An exceptional period for blockbusters, released nose to nose throughout the summer and representing studios just kind of coming out of the recent writer's strike and they were mopping up the last gasps of potential cinematic fantasy franchises whilst gearing up for the imminent boom in more expansive superhero movies which surpassed those of the first few years of the 21st century. In January we had Cloverfield, in May Iron Man. Indiana Jones 4 and Prince Caspian. June, Kung Fu Panda, The Incredible Hulk and Wally. -E. July, Hancock, Hellboy 2 The Golden Army, The Dark Knight and Mamma Mia. And in November, Quantum of Solace and Madagascar 2 Escape to Africa. The top 10 highest grossing films for that year were all mentioned above, with Dark Knight in first place raking in just under a billion dollars and Caspian the 10th netting $419 million on a $225 million budget. And nestled back in early May, released a mere seven days after The Invincible Iron Man changed everything, was Speed Racer. It cost $120 million, which is modest for something this jaw-dropping to look at, and it made only $93 million back and a 41% critical freshness rating on Rotten Tomatoes with only 60% audience appreciation. But you don't come to School of Movies to find out what the public at large thought of something strange and precious. You come for that deep dive into the soul of a movie. And this thing has soul. Ask someone who likes Speed Racer why they favor this oddball failure, and they will enthusiastically tell you, excited to share this thing. I have not, in my time, throughout the entirety of Willow's life, because this thing pretty much came out at the same time as them, I have not heard a single person gatekeeping it. Lovers of this movie want folks to realize its singular brilliance, so that is exactly what we're doing tonight, delving into what displeased so many and why that makes the experience of watching it on a big, clear HD screen unlike any other you will ever see or feel. So let's begin with the first thing that hits you. Just when watching the logos, it's perhaps the most immediately, abidingly recognizable quality of this film. You can tell it from a single frame. Not one frame of this film 
counterpoints what we're about to talk about. It's handling of colour. Using only our voices in this entirely audio medium, <laughs> can we possibly, between us, convey this approach and what it looks like to the eye? Well, it, it, the opening swirl, as best to describe it, uh, around the WB logo is evocative of a kaleidoscope. Yeah. But it's, um, I mean, I've done kaleidoscopes. They're not like in BoJack Horseman. Um, <laughs> uh, they're they're very flat. This movie is, tr- it, okay, so actually that's kind of an interesting thing. But um, this movie's got depth that a kaleidoscope does not. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking yeah, about um, it, I would love to see this movie on a 3DS screen. You know, oh rather than it being 3D that leaps out at you, 3D that goes backwards into the screen. Okay, but can it not be on a 3DS? Can we just have a TV that works like that? Because that- the 3DS is tiny. <laughs> I know, I know. Okay, so a massive 3DS screen. <laughs> and everyone has to stay stock still because it's one of the earlier you models. To, yeah, if you're watching the TV on a slant, forget it. Um, I think what struck me watching it today was that the... There's there's something about the value and saturation of the colours throughout this that varies very little. Most of the colours used are like the green is peak green, the red is peak red, and the, the blue is peak blue for the most part. So it doesn't have shades all Not that much. often. There's, there's a little bit of, of introduction of some blacks around um like it's it's usually related to it being specifically night or there's a little bit of darkness in the red if it's specifically an explosion when the sky goes black a good example of this is night indeed <laughs> <laughs> but generally speaking if the if the color is is a, a thing an item of clothing or an object or something like that it is very very bright very very vivid there's not an awful lot of there's there's very little pastel in this let's put it that yeah. way even the pink is hot pink. Even the pink is hot pink, yeah. I think there's like two examples of pastels. There's pastel pink. Mm. Actually, and they're both related to Susan Sarandon's character. Her mug is pastel pink, and the blue on the, I think it's the kitchen walls, is more of a pastely blue. Mm. Okay, so it's kind of more of a Susie Homemaker shade mm. that sort of snuck in. And she in. wears a, a powder blue cardigan at one point. So what effect does this... Bring because we've seen plenty of films that have high saturation values on colours. What's oh, not like this? Yeah. <laughs> so, like, they they were they they very notably just kept turning the slider up until it wouldn't go any higher. Mm. It doesn't hurt though. Like I've messed around yeah. with uh, movies in the uh, in the digital editing bay, and I've raised the values until it actively hurts to watch them. Mm. Uh, and there's something something about the luminance and, like, the, there's a certain brightness that once your eye it, like, gets it, it feels like a fucking laser pointer. But this film, while, like, kind of mind-blowing to watch, it doesn't hurt to watch. It's yeah. it's very pleasant. It's very sharp as well. The, the colours don't bleed. Pleasant isn't the word. It's, uh, it's very exhilarating. Warm. Exhilarating, I think. Yeah. I know what you're talking about with the bleeding colour effect and that... Uh, Okay, so this movie is an astonishing attempt to recreate the look of uh, 2D hand-drawn animation 
right down to the fact that so much of the movie is shot with deep focus where basically everything on screen is in focus even if they're on different planes of existence which is okay as someone who grew up watching a lot of anime and then like it just doesn't really occur to me when i watch regular movies that they're the focus can be pulling in or out but then I watch this movie and like there's a couple times where they actually pull the focus and it's so obvious. I, I don't know. It's it, it's an it's a weird choice. I'm not surprised more movies don't do it because I don't know how much it actually adds to a lot of the scenes. But in terms of like the look they're going for of recreating 2D animation, it nails it. It does feel like an animated movie made of lots of different animation styles. So you've got the fact that a lot of the backdrops are photoshopped images, essentially. Matte paintings, but made with actual photographs. But they took pictures of, like they'd have a street in one part of the world and they'd add... That's not a sound effect I'm adding. That's that's, that's, that's real racist going past us for atmospherics. Uh, and then they'd add trees from uh, another image, and then they'd have cars on the side, on the parked on the curb from a, a different picture altogether. And then a guy would... riding a bike on the spot that they yeah. kind of put in the background, racing sideways. Absolutely. And then they sort of composite this all together and use it for the backdrop of the people who were being filmed on green screen. So, and then you've got the fact that the movements a lot of the time, especially for things like fights are very stylized, which makes it feel like they've taken humans and made stop-mo out of them (laughs) a little bit. And then when everything is very bright and vivid and you're getting these sort of pulled-back images of the, the racing in particular, it doesn't look flat... But I get what you mean, Alexa. It's not quite 3D either. It doesn't It doesn't feel like there's that dimensionality. Everything is happening right in front of you. And combined with the chaos of the races, the fact that when explosions and things are happening on the track, you're not really supposed to be able to distinguish exactly what's happening. It gives you that feel of watching something that is very fast, very exciting, but you aren't really going to know what the outcome is until the dust settles. Mm-hmm. I get a kind of a Willy Wonka vibe out of it. It's it's very candy coloured. Only well, which which Willy Wonka are we talking here? Because like okay, I hate the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie by Tim Burton, but it does look pretty nice at times. Like, I'm not going to front, okay? Like, it some, has like, similar it, vibrant primaries. It does have similar vibrant primaries in the factory, and it has a lot of compositing, so it's one of the few movies that kind of looks like this movie. Yeah, it, it does have in. a little bit of that absurd stuff. The uh, what's happening at Royalton Industries, you could substitute that for what's happening with Oompa Loompas, all played by Deep Roy, in in the background of Char- of the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory Johnny Depp film. Oh, ironically, Depp was going to play Speed Racer in the 90s. Nope, nope, nope. Bad idea. Yeah. I agree. Uh, Gus Van Zandt was also tipped to direct. Director of uh, uh, My Own Private Idaho and Good Will Hunting. Fantastic at that kind of film, not at this. That's Warwick, he's just going there. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we actually were together on Star Wars The Phantom Menace. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we had a scene together. It was cut, though. Do you remember? Okay. Uh, Thanks for seeing me. I'm here because I'm thinking of... uh, I'm thinking of doing some comedy. Oh, right, like a, a comedy movie? No, on stage. Stand-up comedy, live comedy of some kind. 
Wow. I'm a, I'm a funny guy, aren't I? I'm funny, right? Yeah, definitely. Here's some of the stuff <clears throat> I'd like to work on. Improv. Funny monologues, crazy characters, sketches, slapstick, anecdotes, parody. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. You notice this list, huh? I'm always making lists. Oh. In fact, that's probably why Steven Spielberg cast me as Oscar Schindler, Schindler's List. I said, Steven, I make lists all the time. And he said, that's exactly what I'm looking for. <laughs> What's funny? So I thought you were joking about getting the part of Oscar Schindler because you made lists. No. You know, you had something? Yeah. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory uh, came out in 2005. Yeah. So um, three years before. Yeah, probably right around when they're starting to decide on the direction of this movie, how they want it to look, Mm. and uh, it might have been an influence. Okay, so the the Matrix trilogy is inspired by anime. We know this. Mm-hmm. Um, and people, well, we know this. And at the time, if you were into anime, you would see the comparisons and you would feel like, oh, you, the Wachowskis are in with us in the secret club. And they were inspired by really cool anime. They were inspired by stuff like Ghost, Ghost in, in the, the Shell, Shell and Akira. You know, the really high quality, but also like gritty and very 90s violent kind of stuff. Mm. And then this comes out and it's inspired by Speed Racer, which is a well-known property, but it's very much in the sort of Hanna-Barbera category. Yeah, the Speed Racer leg- is not cool. It is not cool. Um, it's a nostalgic property that if you were a 90s child, you would have been embarrassed for remembering rather than excited for remembering, especially, yeah. I think, in 2008. 2008 was kind of... Uh, the downswing of performative irony, but it was definitely towards the peak of it. It was just before uh, the uh, new sincerity movement with um, My Little Pony: Friendship Is Magic. Oh yeah, yeah. That that I. You know what? I do think My Little Pony killed irony to a certain extent. Irony uh, hooves. The... My favorite pony. <laughs> <laughs> Better than Nazi hooves. Jesus. Oh oh yeah. We don't have time, but there were Nazis into My Little Pony. Oh God. <laughs> I'm about to have a heart attack and die from not surprise. <laughs> they infiltrate. Get everywhere. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so Speed Racer is the Wachowskis doing uh, an anime property from their childhood that's not cool at all. And honestly, best thing they could have done after the Matrix trilogy, just from a mm. unpigeonholing themselves perspective. At this point, they had produced V for Vendetta, hadn't they? Uh, directed by James. Yes, McTeague. and they were also involved in Ninja Assassin, and the star of also that movie is in James this. McTeague. Yeah, the star of Ninja Assassin's in this. He plays the um, Tato guy. Yeah, uh, Rain is his name. He's a yeah, uh, He's a Korean pop star who just also happens to be an amazing martial artist and handsome as fuck. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> Ninja Assassin <laughs> is one of my absolute favorite horrendously reviewed movies. If you go find it on uh, Rotten Tomatoes, it's like. Whoa, 26%. That's harsh. Well, no, it's it's accurate. I, I think only one in four people... That, that, that's generous that one in four people will like this thing. It is a gruey, splatter-tastic callback to the ninja films of Shokasugi from the early 80s. Uh, but, uh, yeah, James McTeague directed that one. The Wachowskis, I think, uh, uh, were his producers. And... 
There's a, there is a sort of a commonality in that they're, they're, they're both hyper real. Mm. And interestingly, the fight scenes were choreographed by Chad Stahelski and um, David Leich, who went on to do uh, John Wick. So there is, it, it feels like that's uh, similar too. But Speed Racer is definitely, like, it's not trying to look cool like that, but it is trying to look cool to certain people of a certain mindset. And now that I've mentioned it, I feel like this should have been the spearhead for the new sincerity movement. It was just maybe a little bit too early and surrounded by too many things that meant that it was just swamped. Mm, yeah, I, I think as well, I, while I completely agree with what you're saying, Alexa, about the making this, allowing the Wachowskis not to let themselves get pigeonhole, pigeonholed, unfortunately, it is so counter to what everybody was expecting from them. Mm. Um, that it, I think that's partly why it didn't do well because their their names as a cachet at that point would have got a particular audience that would have been rather put off by yeah. what this then turned out to be, rather than seeing it as. I mean, ultimately, the Wachowskis are artists in the truest sense mm. of the word. What they make the films that they make are not products. They are almost aggressively anti-product. Mm. And being able to slalom from The Matrix to this should have been like a huge klaxon brilliance mm. way of looking at, at where they went next, but people just seem to miss that. The byline in film magazines at the time was, or, or film publications, was they are going to do for cars what they did for kung fu in the matrix and te technically they do well, they, they, they put them through motions that no one else has ever yeah. even attempted the behind the scenes stuff insists on referring to it as car fu car fu i know car fu show me i don't think this movie necessarily even got any of the people who liked the matrix into the theater like mm. i came out of the matrix trilogy just kind of down on it at the time i saw yeah i saw the previews for this movie i saw the previews for this movie and i was like that looks kind of okay and then the reviews came out and like it, it wasn't positive reviews but it wasn't like oh it's the worst thing ever it was just like yeah it's not very good and i was like well i guess i won't bother then i mean the dark night's out <laughs> yeah <laughs> this is like the antithesis of the dark night it really is <laughs> Okay, so the next extremely arresting and unusual element is the editing, which, again, is something you just won't find in any other film. I asked Willow to think really hard, and they couldn't think of a single other film that does exactly how this is edited, live-action or even animated. So how does it move, and what are the effects upon we, the viewers, as a result of that? Um, I think the strongest example of the wild editing is the talking heads mm -hmm. that will um, just intersperse throughout multiple scenes in this movie. And um, you'll have a head move from left to right, and then there will be a new scene, and then a responding head, and it'll be a new scene. And it's often not it, the room that they're talking in. It is describing something else that's happening in the movie. Yeah. We mentioned a similar transition, a single similar transition, at the beginning of Hellboy 2, where a book covers up the horizontal wipe from one frame to another so effectively an item in this case a person's head is blocking your view of the scene change and the scene changes behind them 
It's, it's effectively very, a person on a green screen with a camera wheeling around them, and they're using that person to cover up the wipe as it moves from one scene to the next. So it'd be exactly. a George Lucas-style classic wipe, but there's a head in the way talking, and the camera's moving in both scenes. Mm. So there's this strange disorienting displacement. It feels to me like not an animated film exactly, but a comic book that's moving. Hmm. It's yeah, very... the main, the main oh, thing I'd compare it to is um, s- the first Spider-Man movie when Sam Raimi was really trying to lean into the comic book stuff. Mm. Or oh, um, even more so, Ang Lee's Hulk. Remember what he did yes, with frames too, and, yeah. and like throwing strange shapes in as, as ways of transitioning screen. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we've got um, Spy Kids 3 and uh, Sin City. We saw that just two days ago. (laughs) Sin City also. um, And Mm. those those don't really match in terms of editing. They just kind of – they invoke it because of how, like, stylized they are. Uh, Both heavily green screen. Super heavily green screen. And then, you know – um, Sin City goes out of its way to recreate comic panels to the point that they're just like, yeah, we don't have a set. This is just a green screen. Yeah. <laughs> Sin City, I think, is a little bit more stationary, though. It, it recreates panels, but you don't quite have that sense of movement. Yeah, it's boxed in. This, is, this feels more a bit more like a motion comic. You know the ones? Yeah, I know, I know. That's a but horrible comparison. No one likes those the, things. No, I know. But the principle of it, the fact that you're taking an image that that is... You see it moving as if it was along the page, but then there there are things that are visually shifting to kind of bring your eye with it. Oh, you mean like the zebras on the side of the raceway in that one scene? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. It, it also plays with time as a result of doing this. There's a point where Royalton starts telling Speed what's going to happen. At, is it Togacan? The next... No, it's, it's the uh, Fuji race. Fuji race, yeah. Mm. The next... Uh, race he's about to take part in. And you're like, okay, so he's describing this. But then because as his head swivels in and out of the screen and he's telling him, like almost like the Emperor Palpatine, I have foreseen it. Speed, like everything goes as he has foreseen. And we're not sure whether we're flashing forward or flashing back or whether we're experiencing these two moments simultaneously, which we are. It's almost like 70s split-screen editing, only rather than the effect there being these two things are happening at the same time, it's these two things are happening at completely different times, but they are linked by this conversation. Yeah. Heist movies do that. Things like Ocean's Eleven, where they say, we're going to do this, and then it cuts to them trying to do that, and then it cuts back to them planning. The Wachowskis just did this in Matrix 4 for their heist of Trinity. Yeah. From the sounds of things, what they were trying to get with this editing style, with the colour, with the the way everything was moving, and it, it is... You can see the anime influences in it, but it doesn't have that slightly stuttered feel to it that anime does. There's a There's a kind of jerkiness about... Anime. That would be because anime, they have to be economical regarding exactly. what they draw. So they have yeah. to hold that frame as long as they can and only animate a little bit of it to yeah. save money and stretch it. That's right. Whereas this has much more of a flow. It's much smoother than, than you would expect to yeah. see in an anime. But it, you can definitely see all of the, the influence in the shapes and the colours and the and the ridiculousness of things that are happening. But from the sound Perfect of it, example what... would be in an anime, um, immediately after... 
Casa Cristo, the race, when it cuts to where's speed? And he's really upset and he's racing on his old family track in the dark. And he's going, ah! The, the camera is going sideways and it's definitely Emil Hirsch alive and driving in this car. Whereas if this was an anime, it would just be a static shot of this guy going, ah! With motion lines. With motion lines and, yeah. and like his eyes would jiggle mm. as he's like, ah! Indeed. And it would slowly pan out and slightly sideways. Yeah. But it would appear that what they were trying to, to get with this overall collection of approaches was to create something that felt like how visual thinkers see things in their heads. Hmm. Interestingly, I see everything. I'm a very visual thinker. I see everything in cinema. It's, it's kind of, it is somewhere between being in a, a, a frame and being in a frame, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You are either in the scene or you're observing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Fuji race, um, when I was first watching this movie years ago, like probably right after it came on DVD, I was so confused about what that meant. <laughs> um, and I think finally, after a few years later, viewing like number five or six, it finally clicked with me. Um, that they are both true. Um, when he's uh, when Royalton is describing the Fuji race, I thought that what we're seeing was a hypothetical, mm. and then Speed would then go and actually do the race. Mm. And so when it would cut from that scene to the next one where Speed is all dejected from losing, I was like, oh, so- wait, what? So we're not even going to get to see the Fuji race? <laughs> um, but I think... By making the decision to have the evil monologue with the actual events of the race is both economical. It raises the tension because you see uh, his words come to truth right before your eyes. When we cut to that emotional falling action of speed after the race, you're like, yeah, this is bad. This like Royalton is uh, legit and all of his threats are reality. So everything he says must be reality. Thematically, it's very in keeping with the film as well, since uh, what Royalton represents is a measure of power and control so vast that he can literally tell you what is going to occur in the future. That uh, Fuji race is definitely a moment of inspired editing, but the one that always sticks with me is the opening race, Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. he's uh, literally racing the ghost of his brother, which is... Okay, they say so it out makes... loud in case it's not clear enough. <laughs> no, okay. He He's races... literally wasting the ghost of his brother. I know writers who use subtext, and they're all cowards. Uh, they do say it out loud, but, you know, as a as a huge video game head, that makes perfect sense to me. Mm-hmm. I spent hours in Crash Team Racing chasing down ghosts in the time trial mode, so I didn't need that explained to me, but it's also just an amazing way of how they shift between what race, uh, Speed is doing now and what Rex was doing in the past. Mm. And I, I do feel like that opening scene actually kind of over-explains a lot because they're trying to ease the viewer into the actual like nightmare of editing they're about to experience. <laughs> hey, start if you mean to go on. <laughs> it's, it's less yeah. of a nightmare and more of a fever dream, but you can't uh, escape. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, but I... I I find the moment where he's following his brother's ghost and decides that he's going to let his brother's ghost, uh, which is literally his record, stand. 
that's such a good moment because it's a it, speed still believes in his brother his brother asked him to not believe the horrible things that will be said about him mm. and even at, like he could have won that and it wouldn't mean he tosses aside his brother it could just mean like he's competitive but he ch- he specifically chose not to because he wants to state that he believes in his brother to himself more than anyone i don't think anyone watching the race gets it <laughs> it's not just the 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 belief in his brother either i think it's the the wanting to preserve the good thing that everybody remembers rex for he says when you have the the bit where rex is racing and speeds the kid in the stands mm. he says he's won this everybody else is just gunning for second even him, he is gunning for second later on because he doesn't want to beat Rex because as soon as he beats Rex, that's like, that's it. He's really gone now. I think that you could release uh, Speed Racer, the short film, uh, with this opening scene because yeah. there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And when you get to him giving up that record, uh, it, it's 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 a, an immediate payoff. And you're like, this was amazing. Like, it, it, it's a great chunk of a movie and if it, it basically sells you on what the rest of the movie is going to be you're like this race was incredible this was the, like if if as long as you have a taste for it the the editing and the pacing and all of this was just so it's so rich that it's selling you on the rest of the movie it's very episodic as well you write about that that intro you could break it off and it would be a, a little standalone story in and of itself i think you could probably carve up the rest of the film into episodes and it works as a as a short tv series hmm. the, the casa cristo race definitely works on its own as its like own little story um i don't actually think you can do that with the royalton discussion bits and the later grand prix like those are way too tied into what's overall happening in the movie yeah, they don't work on their That's own but as an episodic uh, mini series that has a beginning a middle and end that are each made up of individual parts that are strong in their own right it would probably work quite well. It's difficult to say whether in those small bursts people actually might get tired of it less because what you said before, as long as you're into the editing, as long as it's yeah. doing a lot of heavy lifting here. <laughs> that uh, video you sent us of um, a very rare phone interview with the Wachowskis, uh, they, they said, looking back on this film ruefully that uh, cinema has a very rigid aesthetic, especially with the language and grammar of editing. And if you present people, fully grown adults, with uh, a a version of film that they are not used to, they will come for you, (laughs) which is... And and then they compare themselves to Picasso, who got chased out of town for his weird Mm -hmm. painting. Makes perfect sense, yeah. (laughs) They were specifically describing that you could make a film via cubism, where you're showing the front and back of a person's head at the same time. And I'm sure that that actually happened during one of the edits. That being the case, whom did they aim this film at? Kids. Kids. Oh my god, this is such a kids movie. And it doesn't have to be, but um, there's a couple bits of it that are just like, oh, this is this is shooting for the exact same demographic as the Spy Kids movies. Mm. <laughs> I, I wonder if, because I don't think the Wachowskis do make films for kids. 
I don't think they make films for adults. I think they make films for themselves. Mm. But I wonder if because it was so bright, because of the the editing, the, the way it was breaking the grammar of editing and that rigid aesthetic that everybody was used to, that they, it might have occurred to them, well, maybe we can get this past the producers if we let them believe it's a, it's that's how you market it. You target it towards kids. And that's why you end up with these little very kid-heavy asides that mm. seem very out of character for the, the, the kind of stuff that the Wachowskis make. Yeah. You wouldn't want uh, yeah. to bound and then watch this and go, oh, they're the same directors, yeah, that clearly. makes perfect sense. I totally believe that you have a almost spritalless edit of this movie. Yeah, um, I was just about to bring would, that up. I would like to watch it. I would like to give it to you. Uh, see, so, okay, the aforementioned very unusual editing style was a real challenge to work around because I'm used to one scene cuts to another there's a music there's music in the background or, or voices like you'll get match cuts which effectively mean that a person who was speaking in the last scene continues speaking and you can just hear their voice as it leads into the next scene or maybe music that was scoring that moment and so you fade some music down and then you bring some music up and sometimes you can carefully remove a scene that was in between or a section of a scene uh, and and nobody notices the difference but when you've got heads whizzing in and out of the screen and an almost constant score that goes it's really hard to just make that elegant and there were times when scenes just seemed to end. They just seemed to cut abruptly to the next scene. And that's because Spridal came along and fucked everything up. Okay, let's jump ahead there. Because uh, I had actually reserved a whole thing on Spridal. But we need to, to talk about him here. Because he'll be something that a lot of people uh, remember. I would put it to you, fine people, that in their attempt to give this movie kid appeal, the Wachowskis actually straight up ruined it for many adults by posting disgusting shit boy Spritle as the partial audience avatar slash comic relief, sharing his screen time evenly with a more talented chimpanzee. He is a repeated stowaway. <laughs> he is a repeated stowaway, which Stephen Sadak of We Hate Movies considers one of the most annoying and egregious of on-screen kid crimes. And he is hyperactive and a constant attention hog. Commence any counterpoints you may have in defending this moon-faced nightmare child. Okay, here, here's what I got. To answer this question, I'm going to backtrack a little bit about who this movie might be for. Mm -hmm. Imaginary kids who don't exist. <laughs> outside of the Wachowskis making it for themselves, which I think is uh, very valid and something that I would say, I think that niche as it is, this movie is made for fans of the Speed Racer cartoon, the anime that first came out in the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, I think that this movie is a perfect adaptation of that show. Um, you've got um, like moments where the characters in the movie go, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> and, and I'm going to retire and become an international spy with no country or creed. It happens all the time in in uh, in anime, specifically uh, that old anime where they have to fill in those those uh, cultural sounds. And um, the thing is that there's a lot of um, tropes in that show that they have to touch up on. They touch up on uh, a lot of character dynamics, like between Racer X and Speed, between Pops and everybody else. 
and uh, Spritel's in the show too. So for better or for worse, uh, the Wachowskis are like, all right, we're making a perfect adaptation of Speed Racer. That is our mission, along other things. Okay, so we- <laughs> but my edit still has Spridal there. He's actually quite sweet when you have a lot less of him. He doesn't need to be doing this. We've watched a bunch of the cartoons over the past week, and Spridal turned up and went, Oh, Speed, sorry, I was stowing away in the back of your car. Oh, and he does that occasionally, but he does not, like, grab the camera and say, Look at me, I'm doing kung fu with this monkey. He does uh, fight in the show, though. I'm like, sure he, he does. He, he does help out. Hmm. Um, However, the also, other... the, you don't understand this movie. This one was made for the fans is a weak argument. I'm not, oh, I'm sure. not, I know you're not making that. I'm just saying that is not a good way to approach uh, an adaptation if you're like, well, the fans will get this. And it's like, but the fans are a minority within a minority within a minority. If and most of the audience are going to well. go, well, this is fucking weird and walk out. Then making it for uh, the fans are not going to thank you that much. Well, I mean, the Wachowskis would also be fans of this show, yeah. so like that that falls into their box of oh, let's make this for ourselves. Well, it's uh, I always bring to mind the um, the Simpsons movie, which came out the same summer as Bender's Big Score. The uh, former was one of the high was one of the last two highest grossing two D animated movies of all time, along with The Lion King and Aladdin. The Bender's Big Score thing was launched straight to DVD. Was definitely for the fans. And is really good, but it's totally obscure and just like you can't re- like you can't just go to that one if you haven't seen Futurama before and kind of get what it's about. Similarly mm. with the Simpsons movie, they have gags like Rainier Wolfcastle is not the president, but Arnold Schwarzenegger is. That makes no sense if you like the Simpsons. Uh, the only other thing that I'll say in defense, it's a weak. Of disgusting shit boy. Yeah, uh, uh, in defense of Spritel, is that um, he is uh, a really big instigator in the movie. So not in my version. Uh, <laughs> he'll he discovers things that are in the in the the company. That's and true. He does discover the hook thing. I had to include that bit where he has the monkey on his shoulders doing a business. I, I what's <laughs> that? They're flinging <laughs> at us. That monkey take is really funny. But notably, it's not like removing the bit where they're racing around in one of the golf carts doing air guitar mm-hmm. to Freebird hopped up on candy in any way really relates to that bit where they're doing a business with the long uh, overcoat. It's almost more likely that him not making a massive fuss and fracas would allow him to sneak in quietly in an overcoat and just like, oh, so Spidal was there. It's It, it makes a bit more sense. Mm. Yeah. That, that scene, honestly, where it's intercutting between... Royalton yeah. doing Royalton delivering the theme of the film and the the kid and the monkey riding around just doing stuff that's visually manic but doesn't really achieve anything effectively visual graffiti well all graffiti is visual it, that honestly that cinematic graffiti that's the main bit to me that feels superfluous and like somebody at the top said you have to put break this up yeah. and put the kid in because otherwise people what their attention yeah. will wander it's too long a speech okay well then juxtapose that long speech with Spridal and his simian superior sneaking around make it more threatening I want to see what else that monkey can do. I'm hailing to the chimp over here. One of the things that definitely comes up is the only good dramatic bit with Spridal is where Speed's going to leave repeating what Rex did. And his kid brother, who is exactly the same separation of age and years uh, uh, below him the way that he is from Rex, 
is heartbroken. And if he, you'd spent the whole movie with him being so proud of his brother, and then that's the thing that makes Speed stop and think, then Spridal has served an incredibly important narrative task in terms of the repeating cyclical mistakes of families that, uh, you know, when someone is cast out and it becomes this eye for an eye scenario. Which I do think they were aware of because Speed says outright to Spritel, you'll understand when it's your turn. Yeah. He he recognises that this is this is a repeating cycle in this family now, and if things don't change, which at this point he has no reason to believe that they might, yeah. that's going to happen again. But the kid who played young Thor, the one who was in Real Steel with Hugh Jackman, he's a really great kid presence in that movie, and he works. You could totally have done Spridal like that. So I don't have a grand defense of Spridal. I don't even have like a mild defense of him like I did for Kid in the Matrix sequels. <laughs> Um, I don't, uh, like you said, there's scenes where he works. Um, I, I think the monkey actually is a very welcome presence. I love that the monkey has human face pajamas. That's adorable. Yep. (laughs) But, um, Spritel specifically, he steps on one moment at the end of the film where, uh, Speed is kissing Trixie. Not my version. Mine is seamlessly uh, dreamlike. Oh, I can see it too. And, um, that is the moment where I turned on Spritel, uh, real hard. I turned on what he represents and what he represents is the studio saying put in some kid stuff and what do what do little boys like they like jokes about cooties and you know i'm a 30 something trans woman now i want to see trixie get kissed romantically i want to see that i think the wachowskis probably agree with me i think they wouldn't do that now Mm. i agree i think that the joel silver I think this must have been might have been the last project they did together with Joel Silver, uh, but uh, he was definitely there and he was hoping for a success like the first Matrix. But I think throughout the two thousands and and twenty tens, I was like, wow, the Wachowskis are still being given these expensive projects, and I didn't like say I didn't like Cloud Atlas, I didn't like uh, Jupiter Ascending. I know everyone fucking loves Jupiter Ascending. I don't know why, because it doesn't actually feel like a Wachowski movie. It actually looks okay, really I, quite I generic. Don't, I don't think people love Jupiter Ascending the way they love Speed Racer. Yeah. <laughs> Understood. Uh, but it feels dated and kind of uh, tied to the young adult movement now anyway, and just uh, one of those glut of movies from the early 2010s before everything went full superhero. Um, but But I was just so happy that these total brilliant weirdos kept being given crazy amounts of money to do these projects. And like, you know, the, the Matrix Resurrections was a triumph as far as I'm concerned, even though audiences walked away going, what the fuck? That wasn't what I wanted at all. Because they, at least Lily got to make the film she wanted. And it just, it seems like an unlikelihood in an industry where uh, studios, especially now post pandemic, are getting more and more gutless about movies and increasingly pivoting to TV miniseries and spin-offs of IPs. I'm genuinely shocked at that budget. 120 million is like maybe double what the first Matrix movie cost, maybe a little less than double the first Matrix movie. And this movie still looks absolutely goddamn gorgeous. Mm. Like I'm trying to think of like other super like does it does this movie look better than Dune? I mm. I I haven't seen different Dune. kind of better. That okay. Uh, Dune looks absolutely magnificent, but there is a kind of a dour 
overbearing, you know, the horror of nature about the death. Oh, I just thought of what movie this movie, uh, uh, Warcraft. This movie looks <laughs> so much better than Warcraft. Agreed. Uh, another film that actually it kind of sort of reminded me of, if you look at the uh, the, the street outside the uh, Racer uh, family, which, by the way, they're a family literally called Racer. His name is literally Speed Racer. Um, but it's their cute. their home looks like it's in the cat in the hat. It's got that kind of early 2000s, a little bit like, obviously it's too bright. Everything in this movie is too bright, but a bit, a bit too busy, a bit too clean. And it just looks so fucking squeaky. But the cat in the hat is jaded, cynical, despises both its audience and seemingly its own source material. Mike Myers got tired of doing it almost immediately and he wanted out, but they wouldn't let him break his contract. So it's literally a comedian being forced to not be funny through recreating a classic book with so much extra cludge just forced into it. Wait, wasn't the kid in Cat in the Hat Spritel? No, it Am was uh, Abigail that? Breslin's brother, Spencer Breslin, who was also a disgusting shit boy. Now he's a disgusting shit man, according to Eric Siska. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> However, <laughs> moving on. Can we talk a bit about the video games? Because uh, we both, you played the Wii version, I played the PS2 version, and I played the DS version. I've yeah, been trying to find a Speed Racer type video game for years, and nothing ever quite comes close. And people suggest things all the time, but eventually this was like the first time I actually put it in and went, the Speed Racer game, so... Go for it. Yeah, no, this was a, a complete random chance. I just saw it on a, a shelf at a retro store for the Wii for like eight bucks. <laughs> and like, uh, it's clearly not a tie in Warner Brothers had a lot of confidence on because it's just on the Wii and the PS2. Yeah. In the like, PS2 in 2008, that was eight years after it first launched. Yeah, I mean, the PS2 had an obscenely long life cycle. They were still getting FIFA games to like 2014. Jesus. But, um, yeah, no, they didn't put it on the Xbox, they didn't put it on the PS3, and those were definitely moving at that time. I think mm. the Xbox 360 had been out for, like, three years at that point. Not even a PSP version. No, okay, so the Wii game, it's unfortunate that it's on the Wii, because the Wii is still stuck back in standard definition. It's, it's and, so, like, uh, there's a smeary effect where the light in it is kind of just um, crushed, and everything and, looks hazy. I hate it. And they're <laughs> trying. They're definitely trying. The The tracks are colorful. Mm. They've got that sort of Mario Kart 8 loopy yeah. uh, spinniness to them. They feel authentic to specifically the earlier track in the uh, in, in Speed Racer, the one that he's uh, racing against his brother. It feels... And also all, the Mount Fuji track, which yeah, we don't a see a lot of, but it does feel like that track. Mm. Um, and as a game, uh, it's not a super hardcore racing sim, thank God. Mm. Um, it's actually really hard to fall off the track. The sides of the track are really magnetic. You can fall off, though, specifically if you get knocked around real hard, which is a major mechanic in the game. Like, uh, yeah, you gotta do it with, like, motion. Yeah, you're to drive aggressively. Yeah, you gotta do, like, motion controls on the Wii version, which mm. is not great. I would really prefer buttons for those. Oh, on the PS2, but... <laughs> it's just your square and your circle button, you do kind of a ram to the side. It's so easy. 
Yeah, that sounds much better. Yeah. But as a as a as a system, maybe not as a button or a motion control, but as a system, the Carfu is like super elaborate. Like there's all kinds of different like spins and jumps maneuvers you can do to do damage, and there's like actually a point to it because racers don't stay knocked out of the race, but mm. doing damage earns you points which actually contribute to your race score. So like if you end up in second place, but you did a lot of damage, you get more points than the person in first place. It's mm. quite cool, actually. Likewise, I, you I, get points for stunts and you get boost as well. Yeah, no, uh, the, it's, uh, it's, the, it's a fun time. The DS version is very similar. It's uh, The Carfu is more of a quick time event, though. It's got like an X moves into the center of the screen. You've got to hit X at the exact right time, or maybe it'll be Y. Uh, and that usually just like your your opponent does the same, and usually they miss ever so slightly, and you can like you get it, you get your head around the timing for it fairly quickly, and it's it's great fun, and it has that sense of speed and the spinny aroundiness. I've been playing a lot of kart races recently, just for the Mario Kart uh, episode that came out a while back, um, but this all ties in with Speed Racer, the movie, because it is relatively realistic in terms of what he was up against the actual driving in the movie i said i said to sharon and willow today imagine if they tried to make these races happen with real cars like seconds to bloodbath <laughs> six uh, but uh the what what they actually did was get in video game designers to design a digital track and then they uh put that on a tv screen inside the car rig that was on a gimbal and then, effectively, what happened was that the, the, the various racing actors kind of moved the steering wheel to the track as it was going round so that it would actually match for, you know, their reference shots in the final film. They were effectively playing a video game of what would be in the final movie. Ah, the actors in the gimbal weren't. No? No. Emile Hirsch is acting against how the gimbal is moving. There's a guy with the video game set up offstage... Mm -hmm controlling how the gimbal moves oh, right. according to the digital track. So, so all the actor's doing is reacting. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, otherwise Emil Hirsch would have too much to concentrate on in terms of... Drive better! He's, he's having you to, went off the track! He's having to direct his own stunt driving as well as performing, which I think is... Playing is Mario Kart for fun and profit. Yeah. <laughs> the movie is suddenly a Let's Play channel. Yeah. 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 It is a bit like... I think I said this the other day. It is a bit like watching somebody else play Mario Kart. <laughs> A little bit, but it's 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 you get there's. Uh, let's move on to Casa Cristo because uh, this is one of the best races I have ever seen filmed. I cannot oh, yes. think of any that are uh, better than this. It when there is eventually a Mario Kart movie, I would imagine there'll also be a Hot Wheels movie at some point in between time, and they'll probably do. I'm a lot. surprised there hasn't been a Hot yeah. Wheels movie. Yeah, I mean there was a freaking Battleship movie. Oh my gosh, guys, have you not heard of the Hot Wheels movies? <laughs> Are there they Hot Wheels are, movies? They are amazing. They are incredible. They're all animated. Uh -huh. And there's lore, and there's like six of them, and like. Do the cars die. talk? Oh, no, no, no. There's drivers in the cars. Okay. Tiny. I feel, like, I feel like you've just opened up a bionicle sized rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> or a lamb before I time. A, I could do a whole <laughs> podcast by myself on the Hot Wheels movies. <laughs> Damn. It's I, like I'll a sequel to The Borrowers. So do you think that this was supposed to be a big movie and then they were like, this isn't going to work. Let's make it straight to video for children. 
Yeah, they were straight. So they the, the first one was straight to video, and uh, then I think it had like a quiet success, mm. and so they greenlit like a sequel trilogy, uh, and those all came out on Cartoon Network over several years. Yikes! Okay. Yeah, I watched that channel. How have I not heard of this? Oh my gosh! I'll I'll, I'll link the video later. Okay. Following the recording of this episode, Name came back and we did a whole after-school club on Hot Wheels World Race, which you can find on the Patreon bonus feed. But yeah, like I said, when the Mario Kart movie finally emerges after the success of the Mario from Illumination, I'm sure, it will have to struggle to make tracks as dazzling as this. I still cannot believe the Casa Cristo race. It it opens so dramatically with that woman with the flowing red cape. Yes, I am always drawing like, the floor. It immediately goes into like this never-ending archway room, which I'm like, what was the point of this aside from being part of the racetrack? <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's like a bright, shiny version of the Duero Delph from Fellowship of the Ring. The dwarf city. Lots of pillars. <laughs> continue and the carfu in the movie uh, uh, so the first race doesn't even have carfu like mm. we say it's a great little like uh, snapshot of the movie but he's so far ahead of everybody else that he doesn't even bother and then like you know and this is the first race where we really see like um god uh, i'm just gonna call him rain because i can't remember his character's name but rain just like drives over someone activates his jumps uh, kickers in midair and kicks them into a mountain. I'm just like, whoa, it's really good. They've heavily established the bubble safety mechanism yeah. from Demolition Man because otherwise that man is very dead. I'm really glad they established that early as well because it's the only way we could really enjoy this. It's like with Burnout. Mm. They never acknowledge in the Burnout games that people exist in this people world. People are getting very, very because bruised. Ev- like you're encouraged to crash and create all that damage and mayhem and it's like imagine how many people died so that you could do that well, if you imagine that this is a world this is a parallel universe which followed relatively closely to the real world until a point where everything turned suddenly left and like pokemon racing be- yeah and racing became like the focal point of the entire world yeah you wouldn't be allowed to develop the sport to be this aggressive this expansive and this fast and adrenaline pumping if there wasn't some way to make sure that everybody came out of it safely. And yet the irony is people go to see NASCAR just in case there's a terrible fiery accident. Ah, NASCAR is so boring. I live near some tracks. <laughs> it's so bad. Okay, but, well, then um, why do people go to see Formula One then? Is it for perfectly they, level Because it has actual turns. <laughs> okay. <laughs> On the, uh, the history of this world, we do get some very tantalizing black and white footage of mm. early races, which is clearly not our world's racing. I think it's like the Ben Burns race where you still see the cars doing like 180s, yeah. which it's is neat. not how wheels work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other thing actually kind of reminds me of is Pixar's cars in terms of like the the actual the way that they can fling themselves around the track is almost more organic and, and like the cars are alive and have their own momentum to them rather than if you if you immediately go from a kart racer 
to playing something like Gran Turismo, it hits you so hard how heavy and solid those cars are when properly simulated. The only thing chunky about these cars is the sound effects. Mm. They're made of helium otherwise. But, I mean, Casa Cristo is also the one where you get introduced to all the other races, and it's like dragging out all of these weird people with very distinct cars and looks, and it's kind of like Bubblegum 5000, a little bit like Death Race, a little bit like Mario Kart, a little bit like Street Racer, it's got a little bit like wacky races a little bit like street fighter (laughs) everyone's got like the they've got Black Vikings who are really into furs. I just I love that about them that they that the gangsters are paying off all of these evil races. And it's like, well, well these guys are going to want some money. These guys like diamonds, and obviously and these the black, guys are just really into ocelots. They love them, <laughs> and, and I'm like, don't touch the furs with your greasy mutton-covered hands. Well, but then I, that's de- I think they deliberately made it that grotty kind of combination of yeah. grease and fur. You do have this narrative progress as well because the 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 first race where there really isn't any car foo relates to the fact that speed is blissfully unaware of that element of racing at that point in his life and his his method of driving gets gradually and gradually more aggressive as he progresses on yeah. and then by the time he gets to Casa Cristo not only has the race become much more violent and therefore he has to be more aggressive if he wants to get out of it alive mm. he's also gone into it off the back of his family actually being attacked so his personal blood is up at that point and that fits really well I think the way yeah. it, it it builds up and then peaks they and some some of the weapons on those cars are just such delightful kid logic like yeah you've got the spiky sharp bits but then one of the Vikings just has like a catapult with bees in it <laughs> And the and the main like evil racer for this race throws snakes. Yeah, snake like that's oil. one of his main weapons, and it's his main theme. It's cute. It's adorable. He's the one who chews out the the choicest line in the whole movie. Let's pinch these turds off. That Just, that's that's him. All right. It yep. always gets me. I'm like, Ugh. and we're putting it's the popcorn down. Gross. But yeah, uh, the other thing is that um, while the uh, the big looping Mario Kart style Vegas track is. Uh, like you know, very video gamey, and it feels familiar in that regard. Once they're out in the open across multitudes of biomes, you've got the desert, you've got the mountain passes, and the sort of uh, curling around them. The it, it, the cars are out in the open, and they're driving very aggressively. So suddenly, everything feels so much more solid, and because you're aware of the people in there. And they have personalities of each other. Like, you're very aware that there are a bunch of, like, ne'er-do-wells trying to clobber speed with their grappling hooks and their bee throwers that shoot bees out of the mouths of dogs. And, like, one, one of the Vikings has a flailing triple morning star on the back of his, uh, like, pointy Viking ship style wood car. That feels like that would be so difficult to control. <laughs> but they're so, they're so into the idea of racing. It's just such visual joy to watch. It it's absolutely just an absolute. It, it's such a just a nonsense race. Like, mm. and it's great that it's a cross country race too, because then there's actual time for like a pause and for rain to be like, yo, we gotta like step up our game next night. And then you know they get ambushed by ninjas in the middle of the night, which is one of the only times the movie turns off the colors. Yeah, more like ninjas. <laughs> oh, I that line notable. is notable. I think it's notable that this isn't just any cross country race either. It is 
very personal to Speed and his family because this is the race that took Rex from them. Oh, yeah. Um, Do you want to talk about Rex, actually? Because he is a major thread of this movie. So, like, what was the situation that drove for him to be apparently killed? And what did he actually decide to do? And what kind of repercussions does that have throughout the movie as he is indeed, as is revealed at the end, it's also revealed in the cartoon back in the 60s. Like, he just keeps saying as an aside to the kids, Racer X, who is Speed Racer's brother in disguise. Rex is Speed's older brother. Uh, Rex is incredibly talented uh, at racing, just as Speed grows up to be. He's the best race uh, boy. Yeah. And um, he, how do I want to put this? He has a falling out with, Pops racer because um, I think he just finds that uh, the racing world is so corrupt as uh, just as speed does. Mm. And so aggravated by this um, uh, reality that he lives in, he uh, can't stay at home anymore. And he goes and races uh, kind of off the cuff, you know, like he doesn't do it uh, legitimately anymore. He does it in these uh, offbeat cross country races and uh, eventually there's an accident at, that leads the racer family to believe that he is killed. Uh, and then it shows that at the end of the movie, he has faked his death uh, to become Racer X. He wears a With- mask. Yeah, he had plastic surgery. And now he's like undercover working for the police. Like shake well, the ocarina of-, of time. <laughs> Part of the reason he left is uh, definitely to protect his own family because he was trying to do a similar thing that Speed ends up doing, which is, you know, upend the power structures. And they got they got a fucking mail bomb mm. that almost killed Trixie that she was very chill about, by the way. I do have a note, actually. <laughs> I, I pointed this out after watching. Um, Trixie's psychopathic. She she notices that the, they almost died and mutters to herself, cool beans, and then later on sees the Nonja die. He is the only person who dies in this movie. And she's, cool beans. She's totally detached from reality. She has no idea what death and suffering actually is. But yeah, so Rex uh, abandoned the family for their protection as much as uh, it was for him to have, you know, room to do some unsavory things apparently he raced with the criminal underworld for a while they really don't go into much of that because where we meet him he's racer x and he's you know a secret agent basically it's it's unclear i think it's unclear as to whether because we we do have this whole sequence where rex is his reputation is basically being shattered and the the news gets hold of this idea that he is uh, with the criminals and he's participating in these underground races that shouldn't be happening and he's participating in a cheating and dirty tricks campaign and all of this stuff and it's it's not apparent even by the end i would say whether it's that none of this is true and rex was being smeared because he turned down the opportunity to drive for a, a dodgy organization whether royalton or someone else or he went to drive for royalton for a while and all of that shit was legitimate and actually happened but then he decided i can't do this anymore and staged the accident to get out of it although i do think that the reason that he the 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 shadow the literal shadow under which he leaves the house does suggest that at least in part he went 
over to the other side so that none of that would touch Pops the rest of the family. I interpreted that. If, if you look at what Royalton says to Speed, he's like, then your family will get IP infringement litigation lawsuits. We'll drag you through the courts. I, I, I figured what the only thing that could really lead to this confluence of events is that Rex was... Asked to race by some dodgy types, he said no, and they said, We'll kill your family, Rex. We'll kill your whole family. I'll kill your whole family. What? I'll find them. They live at my apartment with me. They're probably at your apartment, and I'll kill all of them. Guess it's like they say Spider Man, Spider Man washes down the water spout. I've never heard anybody say that. So he left and said, yes, I'll do these filthy things for you. And then as soon as he could, he faked his death so he could get out of doing yeah. this so that they would stop coming well. after him and then stop coming and not be able to threaten his family. However, that does leave us at the end with a point that leaves me always dissatisfied. And I went into this like feeling even more than usual and anticipating being told, oh, no, no, that makes the movie better. At the end... He goes, he, he reveals to the audience what the deal is, that even though he took off his mask in front of Speed and Speed was like, did you have your eyes changed? I'm fairly certain you can't have your eyes changed. Um, but yeah, he, <laughs> but yeah, he's had plastic surgery to look like Matthew Fox and can I please get that plastic surgery? <laughs> he's a silver fox. Yeah, you know, he says to his girlfriend, um, not Inspector Detector, and it felt like it was so leading up towards him and the Inspector Detector being a thing. Uh, he, he says, you know, I, lo I love my family and I can never, ever tell them that their son is alive and loves them. And it's like, well, you could. You, you could actually now, like, just just tell them. Just, just like, so, come back to this family and stop pretending. So the moment when Rex uh, leaves the house, uh, I feel is actually got uh, more than a little bit of a coming out metaphor in oh, it. Yeah. This movie, is, this movie is not overall a gay metaphor. It is absolutely a metaphor for creating art. It's not subtle. <laughs> but uh, the bit where uh, Pops tells him, "If you walk out that door, you never, you can never come back here," and then later Pops is genuinely regretful of saying that like he realizes that was uh that was a moment of anger that he wishes he could take back and in a similar way racer x or rex is regretful of how he chose to protect and abandon his family but it's it's a done decision like he can't take it back and he just has to live with the consequences and uh, it just it works as uh someone coming out to their family and it goes bad and now there's just too much hurt and uh, terrible words between them to really patch it up, even though both parties regret it. I think the, the that is there visually in those two scenes as well, the way they're paralleled. I, I have a, a sort of very broad theory about how colour is used in this film. It, specifically, which colours, not colour generally, which obviously, as we've discussed, there is a lot of. Mm. But the... If you look at, at what happens when one particular side of the rainbow spectrum is dominating the screen, if this if, if all colours are on screen, it probably doesn't mean anything. But if it's if it's leaning very much towards the warm colours, red, orange, yellow, then the the tone that 
seems to be being presented is is the heart the family safety learning that that feeling of being supported and protected the race of family represented by red yeah. all the way through red there's like constantly. two or three other people are wearing like red jackets but that is usually uh, an aside because yeah. the, everything else about the race of family is red yeah absolutely when the predominant color on screen is blue and any cooler colors but blue specifically that's representing the outside separation potentially death as well again it's not consistent all the way through but particularly when it's a darker blue or a nighttime blue that speed puts on blue every time he might almost leave absolutely so when rex leaves speed is wearing a blue t-shirt Rex is wearing a a very vivid blue jacket, but as he's packing and moving around the house, he keeps passing in front of the one spot of blue in the house, which is a window that looks out into the night. The rest of the interior of the house is these oranges and reds. And Rex, whenever he says something significant to speed, he, he is either moving in front of or standing in front of that blue window. When he has his conversation with his father... He is right next to the door, which is open and therefore opening into the night and is also blue. So Rex is kind of already lost to that world. You've got the orange and the red behind him, but he's already past the threshold. When Speed has his conversation with Pops, he is standing against the orangey wood of the living room wall. He's carrying a blue bag, but he is not wearing a blue jacket. He hasn't reached the door yet. He hasn't hit the threshold point. So... That kind of gives you that visual representation of Rex is gone. And as his father, again, it's not subtle, as his father says to him, I can't undo what I've already said, but I can make sure I don't make the same mistake again. And I think they, they, the way they get that across both verbally and visually and narratively is kind of this... The Wachowskis are really good at this one, two, three punch thing that makes sure that you don't miss it. <laughs> if it's really important, they will make sure it goes in. They've been misinterpreted in the past. They're not going to let that <laughs> Not going to make again. that mistake again. <laughs> so uh, speaking of Royalton Industries, what role do they take in this story? They're not the only megacorp, but they are the megacorp we are most interested in. It's a surprisingly little extra touch of some cyberpunk there uh i mean that that's not i'm not super familiar with the speed racer cartoon maybe that's how that world works too but here it does feel like we're just sort of in a a race car centric cyberpunk future Mm. (laughs) and uh royalton industries are uh, i don't know they've got their hands in a bajillion things i think the moment that like most encapsulates what they're about is when uh, Royalton is trying to butter up the family, and he asks, uh, Ma- uh, "What? What's Susan Sarandon's character's name? Actually, Mom Racer. Referred to as Mom. Mom Racer. I mean, John Goodman is just Pops, Pops so racing. it kind of makes sense. Okay, so, he's about to become her own Mom Racer. Okay, so Mom Racer, uh, he guesses her recipe, and Pancakes. she's like, "I'll oh, give you the, love. I'll give you the recipe," and he's like, "Ah, oh, no, I don't want you to give it to me. I'm going to buy it for my." Uh, subsidiary that does food for tired travelers i'll draw up the paperwork and it's this great moment of like mom does cooking it's a thing she likes to do and sure it's her art and she's just willing to share it with him and he doesn't understand that it doesn't make sense to him he doesn't Mm. want to have the recipe he wants to own the recipe so he can sell it. He pretends a a lot during this scene. I sympathise. No, wait. 
Scratch that. I empathize. But he's he like, can't that's hide what your the fact human that a, feelings are, right? He can't hide the fact that he's a horrible capitalist brain rot kind mm. of person who just can't even comprehend but, uh, we, not this is, owning we, or paying for things. As we said, this is the most Willy Wonka section of the uh, uh, movie. We kind of want him to defy that expectation and be like, oh, you know, he's the good industrialist. I'm not sure what that would have said in the film in the end, but I I love the speech that he gives. I hate him, and I I, I just love the performance from uh, Roger Allams as E.P. Arnold Royalton. He is like he's my favorite kingpin. By oh the yeah, way. he's like fucking Emperor Palpatine. You know, like, are you ready to be a real race car driver? He's just so <sighs> like he's channeling Tim Curry in that. He's eating up those words. Yeah. And when you race, you'll float too. He's just eating that. He's making yeah. himself so hyper hateable. And in the meantime, we've had industrialist scumfucks who are even worse than him. Like, they can't even pretend convincing... Like, Mitch McConnell. Imagine him trying to pretend that he eats food and breathes air. (laughs) This weird little turtle man who's like, I'm just going to have another little... Yep, that's the blood of children. Keeps me alive. I'm 800 years old. He gets it intravenously because his mouth is busy uh, doing horrible things. Oh, yeah. He's tossing salads, child. But, uh, yeah, no, effectively, Royalton are a very broad brushstrokes, you know, that this is the uh, the end of... Ca- this is capitalism writ large. And the fact that it just comes down to numbers, and as you said, Sharon, Royalton Industries have all the money. Yeah. It's he, not going to make any difference to them. He talks about wealth and money, and those are the only things that matter, but it, it this is not money in the superficial sense. It's not about having money for what it can do for you, because once you have nearly all of it, it's irrelevant. It's about the numbers on the board, about being able to move the world in ways that they can feel even through their numbness that they can see the impact that their existence is having because if that drops for even a second they will become terrified that they are obsolete and pointless and then everything falls apart when he delivers that speech about what the race that meant so much emotionally to pops and speed really did was involving spikes and drops in stock and we're seeing all of these numbers thrown up on the wall and it just looks like hieroglyphs in a language which we as an audience, especially as children, don't understand, it's deliberately obtuse because they don't want regular people playing the stocks game. Uh, Let's see. Regular people playing the stock game at any given moment, maybe from their smartphones. (laughs) That sounds like a great idea. (laughs) You should all invest in a new kind of pretend money. Anyway, um... But I, I do actually think um, the business talk um, is a bit of a problem uh, structurally for the movie because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the opening, the, the scene where Royalton lets it all drop mm. and he's like, this is my, uh, the only table that matters is the stock market table. Intercut with the flash forward to Fuji. And that kid riding around on a fucking golf cart with a monkey playing, hopped up on acid and playing <laughs> banjo that, music version of uh, Freebird. It's quite that, confused. But, 
Royalton works. Where it starts to fall apart is when Royalton is making deals with some shadowy other megacorp guy, Mm. and they're like, oh, we'll drive down the stock price so you can uh, give us this only construction thing so you can have Monopoly. And, like, it's an actual plan, but it's actually business complicated when they have the Tate group, whatever. So the point is, like... It's it's better exemplified with just money changing hands in a montage and black Vikings getting furs that they love. That's fine. <laughs> that's so the, the that's the bit we understand. The betrayal of the racial fa- racer family by the Tate, whatever the name is, the the dragon group. Mm-hmm. That is legitimately kind of hard to keep up with if you haven't been following all the intercutting. Uh, stock price yeah. business talk. Or if you don't care about that sort of stuff. And you're like, this is a, a world where everyone who's evil looks evil and everyone who's good is good. Let's say, for example, you're an eight-year-old child watching this movie. I don't know. Maybe you got lost somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're an eight-year-old child, then they've, they've put in gangsters trying to feed people's hands into piranha tanks in extended, gruesome scenes. I mean, I, I think that, that kids should definitely get dark stuff in their movies. But again, I actually lifted most of the gangster thread out of my cup because it kind of goes nowhere. There's so many scumbags in this movie that it doesn't matter who's paying whom to do what. Just the scumbag's going to scumbag and they're going to fire a beehive at you. Watch out. Crusher, <laughs> whatever his name is, he mm-hmm. is actually from the cartoon. Oh, yeah, so no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure well that's aware why they this is a... Him. a the the like a lot of the speed racer cartoons we saw were like and gangsters interfere and they cut the brake lines ha 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 but, but this yeah, is like no, that, multiple that episodes whole, worth of stuff all happening in in one film that whole sequence where racer x guns down their truck and their missile launchers yeah. it does feel like that's from a different version of the movie where it's not for kids yeah <laughs> well, that that again had to go which uh, which slightly lightened the load in terms of lengthy action sequences but in the end we were surprised that the second time we watched it, the theatrical one this morning, it actually felt a bit less long. And I'm not sure why. Maybe because I was hyper-focused on the edit and how it came across. Um, maybe just that the, the downtime stuff and the silly stuff actually does serve to pace it out a bit. Mm. They, it's they, a long movie, though. Two hours and a quarter. They pull you along. I think the the intercutting pieces that you removed do serve a purpose in that they keep things moving in a particular direction, Mm. at least. But effectively, the Royalton thread, and you only really... Like, you could have done this film in an hour and 45, gotten everyone back in the car and driving home safely. Um, (laughs) With seatbelts. But effectively what's happened is Speed's trust in people is on trial. His, His naivety. Like, he begins the movie naive, and he has to end the movie with his eyes open. And there's something about the fact that he has... Everything comes crashing down when the Mark VI gets destroyed at Fuji. And they have to rebuild the Mark VI into effectively a Mark VII for the final race. When he's finally got his eyes open. Okay, so the Mark V was the one they used in the Casa Cristo yeah, race. That's okay, that's why I got confused. Okay. Whew. He takes that, a step backwards up. because he has to kind of reboot himself. Honestly, the fact that they all look the same is, is not helpful. <laughs> Just, you've got to keep an eye out for the numbers. But yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the Mac 6 that has a 6 on it is actually kind of more uh, a 7 because they've rebuilt it better. And uh, you could call the go-kart that gets blown up for no reason because Rex can't get 
get rid of a bomb without breaking something. Like, he doesn't just chuck it into the street. He has to destroy Speed's go-kart and break a broom. <laughs> as elaborate as possible. Yeah, that was the Mark II, because Speed has a bunch of Mark II flags around his room, which one assumes he won go-karting competitions in. Nice. And, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of the evolution that, that Speed goes through in, in, in this film. Um, around about this midsection, there are some heartfelt talks with both mom and dad. Um, the one where Susan Sarandon says that she, she he just makes her so proud. Uh, and like, that originally was like one of my absolute keystone moments of the uh, film. Around about 2015 was the last time I loved this sequence. Now it's different, because sadly what diminishes this movie for me is that from around about 2004, when I saw him in The Girl Next Door, which is one of the better high school comedies from that era, I figured Emile Hirsch, Speed himself, was a great guy in real life. And since I saw her first in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Susan Sarandon was not only a tremendous actress, but an activist and an environmentalist as well. Unfortunately, in 2016, she backed Jill Stein, a crazy outlier in the American election who was never going to win and only served to subtract precious votes from Hillary Clinton, whom Sarandon mistrusted, probably not without good reason, but at the same time, you're an adult, you understand how a two-party voting system actually works, right? Clearly she doesn't. <laughs> and we'll start with Jill Stein, the candidate who looks most like she believes carob is just as good as chocolate. <laughs> now, Stein is currently polling around 2%, and she has a lot going for her. She's a doctor who practiced internal medicine for 27 years, and she has a broadly appealing pitch, from uh, environmental issues, uh, to expanding LGBT rights, uh, to reducing income inequality. But when it comes to policy, we all know the devil is in the details. And for a candidate who seems to be running on principle, it can be hard to pin her down on what those principles are. After the EU Brexit vote, her campaign issued a statement in which she called the decision a victory before changing it to read, I agreed with the UK Greens who supported staying in the EU. And in response to charges that she was anti-vaccination, she tweeted, there's no evidence that autism is caused by vaccines before Jill Stein, a doctor, remember, replaced it with a more equivocal, I'm not aware of evidence linking autism with vaccines, leaving the door open for doubt and f***ing measles. <laughs> and this strategic vagueness even applies to answering a question from a 9-11 truther. I believe that the, the hijackers were patsies. They did have intent, but there was no ways they could fly those planes the way they did, and there's no willing way those steel buildings could fall the way they did. Do you have did. an opinion about that? So I think we need the full story, and the 9-11 commission itself said, we don't have the full story. So I would simply bring back that commission. This isn't, this isn't controversial, in my view. It's time to get the full story. What are you doing? You know that man thinks you just agreed with him now, right? You can't just hear a conspiracy theory, fan the flames, and then walk away. Is Katy Perry John Bonet Ramsey? Well, identity theft is a real and persistent issue in this day and age, and we really need to look into that. That was a mid-2016 piece on Last Week Tonight, before Jill Stein assisted in Clinton's loss, and it grows more relevant by the year. But that editorial also showcased another third-party candidate who claims to run the world's largest private zoo for tigers and produces incredible campaign videos. First thing is, I am not cutting my hair. I'm not changing the way I dress. I refuse to wear a suit. I am gay. I've had 
two boyfriends most of my life. I am broke as shit. I have a judgment against me from some bitch down there in Florida. And this is all paid for by the committee of Joe Exotic Speaks for America. Wow. Just wow. Joe Exotic is truly the candidate you'd want to sit down and have a beer with, then another beer, and then several more beers until you're drunk enough to try meth for the first time. <laughs> the point is, Joe Exotic, make America exotic again. Mm. I think she's apologised and thought better of it in the in the more recent years as Trump destroyed stability, democracy and everybody's sanity. So Susan regrets her part in that. Hirsch, and then however, Emil Hirsch oh boy. is rather more depressing uh, as a disappointment. He literally attacked a lady film executive at the Sundance Film Festival in 2015. He was drunk and for whatever his unremembered reasons, grabbed her from behind and put her in a chokehold until she blacked out. So he became an actor I actively dislike the presence of. I think I talked about this uh, briefly in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I was like, he's playing a friend of Roman Polanski, a real-life child rapist. And it's like this guy attacked a woman just a few years ago and Tarantino signed him up. And Margot Robbie's there grinning from ear to ear. And I just felt my skin crawling off my body. And... This scene with Speed and his mother makes me cry for different reasons now, and I wish that Joe Gordon-Levitt had gotten the role as he was originally intended to. It was also going to be given to Shia LaBeouf, but Joe Gordon-Levitt would have been a great, like, like he has that intensity. Yeah, no, not at all. Uh, Because it's unfortunate. Emil is um, doing a pretty good job. Like, he he doesn't actually... He's not called on to hit a big range of reactions, because that's just not the character Speed has ever been. But um, I think, oh, God, I love the scene where him and Trixie are in the Mach 5 up on the Hill of Roses. Oh, you mean the one that, in your version, got interrupted by Spidal and in mine just abruptly cuts to a deal with Royalton? Yes, that ver- Yes, that scene. Great scene. And, uh, okay, so we've discussed that the Wachowskis can write some corny-ass lines. Mm. The, the romantic dialogue in this scene on paper is corny as all hell, mm. but... Christina Ricci and Emil Hirsch are really giving it like the exact touch it needs. Like it, it's amazing to compare it to what Natalie Portman and um, Hayden Christensen, Hayden Christensen were stuck with in attack of the clones. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think the writing's a little better than that, but you can see like exactly how those scenes should have been played with a, a more of a playfulness. Yeah. And a sincerity that just wasn't coming across in Clone Wars. They have chemistry, yeah. Although I, I, I do like Christina Ricci fall- in this. I love Trixie so much. <laughs> Trixie oh, falls God. victim to the uh, girlfriend who drives a pink helicopter to help out and then gets to race for a bit and is really good at it. But that if she'd raced it all, story wise. Okay, start from scratch because we've been talking over each other. You go on about why Trixie's great. I mean, okay, so it's entirely Christina Ricci because on paper Trixie is just sort of like the girlfriend, and like you know, written obviously by some closeted women who uh, want the woman to be a functioning character. Mm. But you know, within her place in the story, she uh, helps for one race, which comes out of nowhere because she's not established to be a racer at all anywhere. But it in the game, matter. she can race, same as everyone else. Yeah, well, yeah. Apparently She's got a Penelope pit stop universe. pink car. <laughs> Everyone in this car's universe can drive. Mm. 
But yeah, no, she uh, Christina Ricci's doing great, and uh, she's really cute. I love her. The monkey can drive. It drives in the last shot. It's driving the Mac Five. I love her red outfit in the opening scene and her like red gloves and the, oh God, I don't know. Her looks are just on fire. That's what I got to say. I also kind of wish that Keanu Reeves had accepted Racer X. He's a good man and, and he would have been a welcome presence in this film and might actually have sold it a little bit more uh, to uh, to other f- people. Effectively, he was offered it and turned it down. Matthew Fox does really well and he hasn't actually had that many great movies now that I think about it, I they... checked his IMDb. It's uh, anemic. Yeah, he was a, 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 a murderer in a film around about the same time that uh, Keanu Reeves played the Watcher. He gives me uh, Ben Affleck like Batman slash Daredevil vibes. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. On the topic of good acting, John Goodman. He is my movie dad. He made me cry when oh. he accepted <laughs> Speed Racer. Um, I uh, on his like. You know, when they're redoing the scene where Rex leaves and he's like, I'm going to be a better father. And I'm like, oh, my God, John Goodman, please be my movie dad forever. Oh, as a really great uh, presence in the movie when he's interacting with Spritel watching TV. I Not really like <laughs> <laughs> I really like the interactions there. And he's got these like, like these like face uh, reactions and sounds that he makes that seems straight from the uh, anime, mm. and yeah, no, it's it's just really um, warm. A, a lot of this movie is warm and comforting to me. And then I he really... gets to show up and do wrestling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as, he reminded me of Mike Hagar from Final Fight. There. <laughs> Right, uh, so let's uh, finish off with a little bit of color theory. Uh, did anyone notice any other colors that seem to mean something? I, I've got a bunch of uh, question marks here. <laughs> like, I think this is what it means? Oh, God, beyond purple being the color of Royalton Industries because they're royal, mm. and royal is the color of nobility, I got nothing. I, I was too busy trying to keep up with the spinny heads. <laughs> Purple is also ecclesiastical in nature. It is the clergy. Uh, but oh, it's yeah, in video true. game terms, purple is very often tied in with corruption. If you've got, like, purple goo on stuff, you're like, wow, I've got to clean this place up because there's purple goo everywhere. It does, You don't even have to think too much. It just looks bad. It is, in fact, frequently associated with baddies. Think about it. The Decepticons, Joker, Thanos, which is a shame because purple has become my favorite color. Sharon was talking earlier about reds and oranges and yellows being... Uh, Colors for the Family, and in the intro uh, to the original 60s anime, the red and yellow checkerboard Mm. is what you first see and what you hang on for that intro sequence. And we finally see that uh, checkerboard pattern at the finale of the movie, you know, where he's hitting the finish line and he's spinning and it's all coming to that and you see just the red and white and uh, it goes from red and yellow to red and white probably because it is an arc perfected like he's come to there and it's all pure and he's got the purity of victory yeah yellow um sharon theorized meant learning because all the announcers seem to be wearing yellow except for one guy who's wearing a red coat mm. uh, and a lot of the teachers and school related stuff is in yellow yeah learning and, ob- and mom observation um the classroom is predominantly yellow racer um sorry racer x has a yellow car speed as a kid 
is wearing a yellow jacket when Rex is teaching him to drive. Mm. It's it, it it seems. And yet to be... Rex X's car is yellow, and yet he doesn't seem to be learning much well, of anything. No, no, no. But like I said, learning and observation, not necessarily being the person who's being taught anything, but being part of. Oh, he's a spy. Yeah, uncovering the truth and and yeah. sort of finding things out. Yeah. That, that was my theory on yellow. Racer X is like the one thing that everybody wants to learn, whether they know it or not. Nice. Uh, the Racer family would love to know who Racer X is, and that's the one thing that uh, they'll always be chasing to learn. Uh, my theory on white was purity. When Speed wears white, it's because he is absolutely like, he is a naive, angelic child who believes that the world is black and white. He drinks milk when he gets to the end of the races rather than champagne. He doesn't slosh champagne. At the celebration party, everybody who's on the side of the Mm. cheering is wearing white. He drives uh, the Mark V and the Mark VI, which are both white white cars they're so white he has a white helmet and there's very few other people in white in the, in this uh, movie i think uh, the uh, when he's racing in casa cristo his teammates uh, have white as well white yeah uh, tejo has white with the dragon up the side yeah, yeah. his sister wears white when she comes round to mm. give them the invitation she gave a great performance by the way uh, musha the the leader the head of the other corporation that's mm. involved in the machinations wears a completely white suit with a white bow tie Mm-hmm. And Burns. Do you mean Canada? Yes. But he's not pure at all. No, he no, was no. signing but deals with Royalton. At that point, he's holding himself above what Royalton is ah, falling down Ah, nice. Into. Royalton's wearing almost, I think he's wearing his purple suit because the shadows, it looks like he's wearing black at that point. He's right. falling down a hole. Musha is keeping himself away from nice. that. Nice. Burns, who has been tarnished with corruption throughout the whole thing, but then comes clean at the end, is commentating the final match, uh, final match, final race, and he's wearing a white suit as well, albeit that he has a blue bow tie. Nice. So that checkerboard you mentioned at the end is a, uh, a combination of the red for family and the white for purity. Speed has won on his own terms. I think there's a really clever um, doublespeak going on with Burns, played by uh, Shaft. Uh, clearly the Wachowskis were calling in some favors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but uh, so he says... Uh, you know, Speed is at a very low moment. He's just lost the Mount Fuji race, and Burns is like, yo, you were racing really good up until you crashed. And he asks Burns, he doesn't ask him, but he wants to ask him whether that uh, 43 Grand Prix was fixed. And Burns doesn't actually confirm it. What he says is, everyone thought me and my rival hated each other, which is not an admission of the fact that the race was fixed. It could simply work as Burns reflecting on the fact that even within his race career, which he might never have, you know, thrown a race or whatever, but even within his pure racing, people tried to impose this narrative on him of him and this other racer having like it out for each other. And they were just friends and he doesn't like that narrative, but he can't really push back against it at this point. Can he? This is like the whole world being children and not realizing that wrestling is preordained rather than not real. Like they're risking their asses out there, but there is a decision on who's going to win. Mm. So the whole we were friends goes against kayfabe or the uh, ancient wrestling practice of pretending you were in fact the rock or the undertaker. 
Yeah, exactly. Like he wants to break kayfabe on that, but it's it's well past the point that it would make any difference. Yeah. But Speed Racer interprets that as him admitting that the race was faked, and we uh, you know we don't get an answer on that. Like that one, we have to just kind of interpret. Hmm. And interesting. Um, My interpretation is that he was saying no, it wasn't. Hmm. Also, this is rather timely that we talk about kayfabe. Didn't Scott Hall, one of the uh, monumental people at the uh, heart of when kayfabe fell apart in public, uh, just recently died? I have. Sure, I will go ask my wrestling friends about that. (laughs) (laughs) It was when a bunch of wrestlers who were supposed to hate each other all had a bit of a cuddle in the middle of the ring and the crowd were like, No, this doesn't fit with our dynamic! How dare the action figures have inner inner lives? So uh, other colors that I noticed that probably didn't have any, like none of these may have, like these are just our suspicions on, uh, these are just our observations on what might have been in the Wachowski's minds. And remember the Matrix films, they changed what gold meant over time anyway. So it's it's not uh, ever going to be uh, 100%. And there's of course people in the, in the red turns up in no connected way to the racer family and purple occasionally turns up when not connected with Royalton. But when Royalton brings them flowers, I was like, those should have been violet. For a start, he says they're bluebells. Those are like tulips that are blue. They're lilies. And they're blue, but they're not bluebells. But no. bluebells are violet. They are. And yes. he should have given them violet flowers. So symbolically, he tries to force uh, Speed into a violet suit mm. so that he's under the yoke of, uh, of Royalton. But you said, no, it's important that they're blue. I think the blues... No, no, no. What I meant because was... Because they are the harbingers the blue, of separation. The blue still works, yeah, because at that point he's he is there. They don't know it yet, but he is there to drive a wedge between them. So yeah. he is bringing separation into the house. I like that. Is there anything... Is there anything to the fact that red and blue make purple? Yes, exactly. Purple. So with my sort of warm colours for the family and safety and and the cooler colours and particularly blue being the outside, Mm. there are two... If you put the the rainbow colours in a circle, there are two colours that connect those two sides of it. Green, which in this seems to be used... when When it's dominating the screen, it's used very sparingly. One, when... Immediately after Rex's death, Mom is comforting Speed in his bedroom. She is wearing a green dress, and I think there's some green in the wallpaper as well. Mm. And the second one is when we cut to Rex's funeral, everything is green. The trees, the grass, the lighting, yeah. everything has a real green Green is feel bad to in it. this world. The so uh, gangsters have a, a truck with green on the inside of the wallpaper. Yeah, there's, there's that too. But that's more that falls more into the category of, like I said, when all the colours are on screen, don't put too much weight on them because they're, they're all just yeah, It's a very there. green room. <laughs> but, the, but green for me sort of represented a, a grief and, and the process of moving from family and, and support and love to being separated from them and mm. and some you know the outside intruding on that that safety and purple is the other thing that connects the two at the other side and that is a uh, uh, what's the word a misleading lie effectively it is the outside pretending to be the inner circle and the the support of the so family it's blue so pretending that's that to blend be red the blue and red yeah yeah Nice. Uh, also, orange is kind of is is frequently at the racer household as well, and seems to just represent warmth and familiarity. Yeah, I, I put Sparky, that down who we safety. haven't mentioned before much, wears a lot he of like, orange, white and orange. Yeah. He's pure like that. Uh, and pink means a girl drives this car. <laughs> 
Okay. He seems to mean Trixie or somebody else who's a girl. Who's a girl. But she looks so good in pink. And <laughs> she does. She does. She, she does. does. Yeah. There's a flash of her in the helicopter where you see her manipulating the handles, and I'm like, oh, oh, that is not a real helicopter. That is <laughs> not a real helicopter. What gave it away? Well, like I said earlier, the actual way that they did the production design on this was actually, it's not animated. It's not far off, but honestly, the closest thing I could say that, that that is to this design process is Photoshop. Because when they're racing around the curves, those are photographs of real places like the Swiss Alps and the sort of the, the, the curling uh, roads around there. And uh, the desert was like an actual photograph place. They went to those locations and photographed them and then used them in the green screen so that the cars would have somewhere vibrant to be and then just sort of up the color factor so those that they're combining lots of real elements into like a collage of a movie it's definitely that's definitely where you can most see the cubism uh when they're like shifting like planes of reality around on each other Mm. like what you're describing yeah they're photoshop layers but it's Parts of the planet that are shifting around yeah. as part of a Photoshop layer. It's it's something, all right. It is, which is, again, why it doesn't feel like anything else you'll have seen. Um, it, there'll be things that it reminds you of, but not the whole way through, and nothing has all of this the whole way through. And the other thing I noticed, and this is something I've been realizing more and more often from having an OLED TV, being lucky enough to have an OLED TV, um, we spent a lot of vacation money and that and that in the end since it was 2020. We ain't going anywhere. Um, but I've not. I've become really adept at appreciating craggy faces. We rewatched uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy the other day, and in in glorious 4K, Ian McKellen's face is labyrinthine. I love looking at every line. But when Elijah Wood came on, I'm like, have they used digital smoothing? His face is like a baby's ass. It's just smooth. But in Speed Racer, there's barely any texture. And I think it's so that there is kind of a a unifying feel to the world where if you put a CGI car in, it won't distinguish itself as being different to the definitely real textured thing next to it because they share the same consistency. It's like um, if, if you put three elements together on film that definitely aren't there, but you made the whole thing black and white, the eye tells you these things all exist in the same place. But if you have different depths of field for all three different things and the light's affecting them in different ways and it's got different colors throughout and different textures, especially in HD, you really start noticing that stuff. So I finally started noticing a few times when like Bilbo... Old Bilbo walks away from Gandalf, and I'm like, whoa, Ian Holm was definitely in a different room to Ian McKellen there. So in this, they make everything look hard and plastic and shiny. I did notice, actually, because you commented that the cars don't distinguish themselves from each other in the sense that none of them seem to have much in the way, until they explode, obviously. None of them seem to have much in the way of of chips or scratches or anything like that. The Max 6 at the end, though... Oh, it's covered. ...is, yeah... Scored. All beaten up, but the uh, there's a very deliberate. Like if when the cars flip and they do this repeatedly, look at the undersides. If you've ever seen the underside of a real car, it's full of like those um, pipes and colons and otter splazers and camshafts and all kinds of stuff that I don't know anything about because I'm not a car person. When they spin around, they're kind of smooth with like a couple of very distinct lines. They're 
Again, to go back to these, they are Hot Wheels cars. This is a kid playing with Hot Wheels and making them go and like hit each other with their spinning asses in midair. Or Matchbox cars if yeah. you're British. Or Matchbox if you're British, yes. Mm. Yeah, but the, the CGI the CGI is absolutely impeccable. Mm. Like even t- fourteen years on, ooh, boy, yeah, that's that's a while ago. Um, but yeah, no, it's absolutely Beginning impeccable. Beginning of the Obama administration, and it it definitely helps that the movie itself, like the the CGI doesn't stick out because the green screen layering is sticking out at your eyes so much. Yeah, it kind of hits that same level on a much grander scale that um, Kung Fu Hustle did, mm. where the effects don't even try to look real, so you just kind of roll with it, yeah. and then that that lets some of the CGI slip by really cleanly. The unifying yeah. factor being Yen Wu Ping. It's, it's, it's hyper real. Yeah, I, I do and think... And both of them were trying to be cartoons. If you can pull that off with bare-faced cheek, that can be incredibly impressive. That sense of, we know you can see this, you're meant to. We're, we're using this intentionally as part of the stylized effect of the, the overall aesthetic. And the very end, when Royalton gets banged up after Speed wins his race, and it says that the uh, headline, Cheaters Never Prosper, that is a bald-faced lie of an idiom perpetuated by history's most prosperous cheats. Yeah, this ending is, um, it, it only works for me at all because Royalton's wearing, like, cartoon jail clothing. Yeah. So, I, so I'm still like, okay, this is still definitely a kid's movie. Like Lex Luthor in the Christopher Reeve Superman films. Mm-hmm. That suddenly they're wearing stripy outfits and smashing rocks. Or Paddington. Yeah. Uh, but if crime didn't pay, there would be very few criminals. And obviously, as we sat and watched an obvious, villainous, corrupt criminal run rampant for four years, it was like, okay, so when's he going to go to jail? And then the conclusion was, oh, never, nev- never then, never. This guy being the president, it's like there's a horse loose in a hospital. I think eventually everything's gonna be okay, but I have no idea what's gonna happen next. And neither do any of you, and neither do your parents, because there's a horse loose in the hospital. It's never happened before. No one knows what the horse is gonna do next, least of all the horse. He's never been in a hospital before. He's as confused as you are. There's no experts. And then for a second, we were like, maybe the horse catcher will catch the horse. And then the horse is like, I have fired the horse catcher. (laughs) He can do that? That shouldn't be allowed, no matter who the horse is. Literally, there is no justice in the world if you put justice in the hands of people who have a vested interest in maintaining their status quo. But ultimately, unrealistic as it may be, the film itself is highly supportive of the passionate, the driven, and the motivated to accomplish something. And it is utterly derisive of big business. Family is the most important thing of all is a message that just never seems to get old. And there are enough crossed pathways in this particular family for us to connect with at least one or two of them or all their situations. Ultimately, corruption, cheating and nihilistic cruelty absolutely exists and rewards those who wallow in it with power, money and success. But in the end, it's actually irrelevant that Speed races at all or that he wins. The moral victory is won by going up against Royalton knowing what he isn't. (laughs) 
I love this movie. There was a video that Patrick H. Willems put out that I purposefully did not watch before recording this just so that I would be uh, as, as fresh as I could. But one point that he makes in that video is something that Alexa um, hinted at and that this movie is an allegory for making art. It's very, you know, once you know that, it hits you in the head with that over and over and over again. Um, in the scene where Mom Racer is consoling Speed, the the business side of that that doesn't matter to her because she's so proud of speed uh, for making art on the racetrack and that is not about the profit or the business or anything like that and speed finally it's he starts out the movie naive but he takes these lessons of what is the beauty in that naivete what is the positives from just celebrating the sport as i want to celebrate the sport and so when he goes to take down big business as best as he can. The only thing that he knows how to do is to race. He is not racing to, you know, make a statement about um, business or whichever. What he's going in to do is just to race really well. And he does that. There's a thread at the very beginning of the movie where Rex is teaching Speed how to listen to a car. And that comes to the climax of the movie where after he has exposed Royal as a cheater, he still needs to win the race, but his car is jacked up and he's stuck there and everybody else is passing him. And the only thing that he can do, because he doesn't know the mechanics of cars, the only thing that he has left is to listen to it. And the magic of intuition and knowing your art as something alive and something that's within you not the mechanics of it or how uh, the, like the terminology or the definitions but just having an inclination to liking it he comes into the solution which is to put it in a fifth and slam it and there we go you know he's uh, suddenly it doesn't matter who's in front of him because he just jets to the front and he wins that race and he doesn't do it for the protection of his family he doesn't do it to stick it to Royalton. He just does it because he loves it and it is his best form of self-expression. And that earnestness that, that the makers of this movie want to convey to the viewer, it just bleeds through. And so you have Speed wanting to do his art, but you have the movie makers, you have the Wachowskis and everybody else who was involved in this movie wanting to convey that to you i think the script is really solid like the the way the the lines flow and that comes from the delivery of the actors and you also feel the tension and the 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 emotion of this movie through the score i think the score has really good um themes and it has really good um use of the music that came before it at the end of this movie after he is back on his race you have everything going. You've got the music, you've got the script, you've got flashbacks of everything that has come before it. And it all just informs on this euphoric celebration of the moment of winning a race, of doing the thing that do best. And it's, it's, it, I just, I love this movie so much. Wow. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm not going to top that, but yeah, that last absolute gut punch of a race moment where he kicks it into fifth gear and just 
soars ahead of everybody. It make it made me cry like six years ago when I first watched this movie, and I didn't really like put a lot of thought into it. Like it was just like I'm checking off a box on my Wachowski category. I hope it's good, and oh my god, it's making me cry. The the, the shiny car movie is making me cry, and it still makes me cry. <laughs> I think my what peaks this film for me is partly the watching speed make art with a race car speech still gets to me the way that the there are scenes in this that are almost literally painting the screen with the movement of the vehicles you you're not really seeing cars move anymore you're just seeing swirls of light and paint moving around and it's it's beautiful absolutely beautiful but i think the the statement from racer x about it doesn't matter whether racing ever changes what matters is if we let racing change us that kind of feels like the wachowski statement on working in hollywood not just the process of making art but specifically trying to make art in that environment it is a very very business-focused world and an extremely corrupt one as well. And there, there is next to nothing in Hollywood, including this film, that is not in some way touched by somebody's terrible behaviour. And for them to be able to convey whether they are able to, to hold this to themselves for the rest of their careers or not, doesn't matter at this moment that they are able to say to an extent you you just have to be able to hold what meaning it has for you within yourself and that may have to be enough but if you can have that then it will be enough and if if Lara and Lily never make anything between them that I like on its own merits again I will always admire them immensely for holding true to themselves and, and being able to put that that sense forward in almost everything that they produce. you from the bottom of our hearts to the patrons of our arts. Every month we do this and every month you say keep going. Thank you. And if this really was racing and you looked all over our car, you'd find stickers for our top sponsors. Thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Alexa Vargas, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clayson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Matthew A. Siebert, Matthew Webb, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Hellas Haya, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns.
is one more tiny thing about the colours as well. Oh, yep. At the very end, when Racer X says he's not going to tell them who he is, but he is wearing red. He ah, is wearing a red scarf nice. and his girlfriend is wearing a red dress. And that says even if the family don't know he is him, he is taking them with him. Nice. And that will be all for Speed Racer. We will hopefully have another Wachowski project to talk about in future. Until then, would our guests like to promote whoever they're racing for? We'll start with Alexa. Yes, okay. I finally have a new video to promote. I've been uh, chipping away at the webcomic questionable content on my YouTube channel, just kind of doing a summary retrospective. It's been running since 2003. There's almost 4,000 individual panel uh, pages of this webcomic. It's very trans and queer and robots all over the place getting kissy with each other. It's great. Go watch it on my YouTube channel, Pluto Burns. And Name. You can keep up with me on Twitter at Name the Nerd, N-A-M-A the Nerd. Um, but in the meantime, I'm going to push uh, your local library. Go get <laughs> a library card if you don't have one yet. You could probably watch Speed Racer for free with your library card. On there's DVD. A lot of DVD, man. There's Blu-rays. There's video games. It's a, there's a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of e-media as well. So if you like audiobooks, if you like uh, digital comics, uh, it, the world is your oyster and it's at the library. I thoroughly support this sentiment. Libraries. Next week, one more additional show in our commission season. And it is for one of the best films of the year, if not the best. One so intimidatingly good, we were going to take a while to cover it. But this commission got it done now. Everything, everywhere, all at once. So time for Victory Lane and a cool, cool bottle of the purest milk. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. Now we cue the monkey.
competencia quien sea rápido acelera uh, el momento se pone intenso Around the track, he's sailing down the bottom like he's never coming back. Adventures, baby, just.